the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Antithesis Summer Season. For the next several weeks, we're going to release episodes that are previously released on this podcast from the 2021-22 recording season. We're doing so because we want to highlight some of the year's most tangible content. I pray that this work will equip you and strengthen you and remind you of the truth of God in these evil days. There is an absolute antithesis between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of darkness. Our prayer here on The Antithesis and on the Bar Network, by extension, is that we can help equip you and your loved ones to know God's truth, stand for God's truth, and watch as God works among us in wonderful ways. Enjoy this re-released episode, and God bless you. Welcome to The Antithesis. My name is Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Some years ago, theologian J.I. Packer wrote this about the self-authenticating nature of the scriptures, the Bible. The scriptures authenticate themselves to Christian believers through the convincing work of the Holy Spirit, who enables us to recognize and bow before divine realities. It is he who enlightens us to receive the man Jesus, as God's incarnate Son and our Savior. Similarly, it is He who enlightens us to receive 66 pieces of human writing as God's inscripturated Word, given to make us wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.15 In both cases, Packer writes, this enlightening is not a private revelation of something that has not been made public, but the opening of minds sinfully closed so that they receive evidence to which they were previously impervious. The evidence of divinity is there before us, in the words and works of Jesus in the one case, and the words and qualities of Scripture in the other. It consists not of clues offered as a basis for discursive inference to those who are clever enough, as in a detective story, but in the unique force which, through the Spirit, the story of Jesus and the knowledge of Scripture always carry with them to strike everyone, to whom they come. And then Packer concludes the point. In neither case, however, do our sinful minds receive this evidence apart from the illumination of the Spirit. The Church bears witness, but the Spirit produces conviction. And so, as against Rome, that is the Roman Catholic Church, evangelicals insist that it is the witness of the Spirit, not that of the Church, which authenticates the canon to us. So the fourth answer, Packer writes, of the Westminster Larger Catechism declares, quote, The scriptures manifest themselves to be the word of God by their majesty and purity. Moving ahead, by their light and power to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. But the spirit of God bearing witness by and with the scriptures in the heart of man 
is alone able fully to persuade it that they, the scriptures, are the very word of God. End quotation from Packer and the Westminster Larger Catechism at the end there. Why do we begin with these potent and beautiful words from the now departed J.I. Packer? We begin with them because even as the scriptures are self-attesting, so the divine nature of the scriptures renders them our theological authority. God's word alone, the Bible, is our theological authority. It is our final authority. That doesn't mean that we merely give lots of different voices a hearing and then scripture at the 11th hour rubber stamps whatever the other voices have said. It means this. Scripture is our theological authority. Today, our particular challenge is this, to be biblical in our theology, our life, and our witness. The sufficiency of Scripture, as much as the authority of Scripture, is challenged at every turn. We have seen this in more areas than we can count. We have witnessed for some time now the attempt to integrate secular psychology and Christian counseling, biblical counseling, more aptly. That's called integrationism. We've seen this in recent days with the attempt to integrate secular justice, often called social justice, with biblical justice. That's called wokeness. We have seen in numerous areas, one after another, attempts to blend worldly thought, worldly philosophy, worldly ideas with the Scripture. It is not that we never can learn something from an unbeliever. It is not, furthermore, that the Bible alone gives you the answers, like an answer key, to every math problem, calculus equation you could ever come up with. That's not a right understanding of scriptural sufficiency. Scriptural sufficiency, however, the entailment of the divine nature of the self-attesting scriptures is the view that scripture gives us everything we need for life and godliness. Zdoe and Eusebia in the Greek and Second Peter 1. Scripture and scripture alone gives us everything we need for life and godliness. There's nothing lacking. There's nothing left out. There's nothing we need to supplement scripture with to lead a Christian life to have sound Christian doctrine as our baseline. You don't go begging in any other houses, in any other cities, on this world, for the doctrines that the Word of God lacks, the truths the Word of God lacks, that God has not given you for your life and your theology. It is all there in the sacred text. Perhaps to this point, this sounds rather uncontroversial and even blasé to some of you. But today, we are all encouraged, at least in evangelical, theological, academic circles, to compromise what I have just been saying. Let me sharpen the point. We are encouraged today in the evangelical academy toward a kind of trendless and popeless Catholicism. We are encouraged today toward a kind of Trentless, Council of Trentless, and Popeless, no Pope, Catholicism. 
According to some today in the Evangelical Academy, we are supposed to see Scripture as the fountainhead of our faith. But then the creeds and confessions shape and even develop our theology, our faith, from there. This, we should note, fits elegantly with a Catholic or proto-Catholic understanding of theology. In Catholic theology, you have freedom to develop doctrines that are in a seed form, perhaps, there in Scripture, but may need some coaxing, some nudging and nurturing out of the biblical text. They're not explicitly there, but you can find the seed of them, and then you can develop them from there. That's a, that's a classically Catholic understanding of theological development and method. Among evangelicals of the Protestant tradition, by which I mean the meaningfully Protestant tradition, the evangelical tradition, the Reformed tradition, we revere creeds and confessions. We use and learn from them in profound ways. We give thanks for them. But we never see creeds and confessions as Scripture. They're not akin to Scripture. They're not at Scripture's level. They're not just below Scripture. They are of a different essence, if you will, than Scripture. Scripture alone is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. Scripture alone has that identity about it. Nothing else does in terms of documents, books, and sources in the world of men. So we revere creeds and confessions, but we do not hold a Catholic understanding of doctrinal development. In similar terms, many of us recognize real common grace gifting and ability in many thinkers who are not Christians. Think about the philosophy of Plato and Aristotle, for example. It's evident to many of us who have read these men that they're brilliant men. And I think you can read them profitably to a certain degree as a Christian, let's say in a university setting, or even just for your own interest. I get that. But do Plato and Aristotle contain vital doctrinal truth for your Christian faith? Does Aristotle, for example, make real, meaningful, and even needed contributions to your theology proper as a Christian? Does any unbeliever have that role, however brilliant? The obvious answer must be absolutely not. Plato and Aristotle do not supplement our faith. Plato and Aristotle are not necessary for life and godliness. There's not a sentence in them that we need. So too with Thomas Aquinas. We are encouraged today to see Thomas Aquinas as really the patron saint of reformed academic evangelicalism. But in truth, though a brilliant man, though a man whose writings you can read and sift through and find true statements in, Aquinas is no reformed evangelical. Aquinas is the doctrinal workhorse of Tridentine Catholicism. Aquinas is the one who drives us to bring in Aristotle, Aristotle's ideas, into our metaphysics. Aquinas is the one who denies different doctrines that the Reformers, some 300 years after Aquinas walked the earth, would codify as truth. Aquinas did not affirm what we would later call reformational doctrine. Aquinas opposed it in no uncertain terms. In the academy, however, today, the Evangelical Academy, 
numerous voices push us toward Thomas Aquinas in particular as really the lodestar theologian we need. There's much to say about Thomas Aquinas. My friend Jeff Johnson, the president of the school at which I serve, Grace Bible Theological Seminary, has written a tremendous book about Thomas Aquinas and his theology. It's called The Failure of Natural Theology, and I would commend it to you in the strongest terms. I really think it's the most important theology book of the year. Johnson shows in no uncertain terms the problems that I have been quickly discussing. We can't go into a deep dive at this point on Thomas Aquinas. We have plenty on the table already, and we're not even to the substance of this humble little podcast. Nonetheless, we must be very careful as those who love Scripture, as those who are, by God's grace, born again, as those who commend sound teachers to our friends and our students and church members, we must be very careful to note that Thomas Aquinas denies the Christian faith as we practice it, its soteriological core. And yet we are told today that this is the man who should be the guide of the church when it comes to sound doctrine on the doctrine of God. We're in danger today. We're in danger today of compromising the sufficiency of Scripture when it comes to theology proper. We're in danger of thinking we need outside secular, unconverted voices to make sense of the Godhead. And a corollary danger here is that we would end up thinking that the Godhead, the Trinity, one God, three divine persons, would be beyond the ordinary Christian, beyond the lay man and lay woman in the church, as if elite academic theologians alone can understand and talk about the Trinity. Oh, if we arrive at such a conclusion, we're truly in terrible straits because the Trinity, if you will, belongs to the whole church. It's not that everybody is called to be a teacher. Men are called to be teachers and shepherds and elders of the local church. So men are appointed to that theological role. That's why GBTs, GBTS, excuse me, I can't say my own seminary's name, trains men. We train men for pastoral ministry and related roles. Men are called to teach the word of God and preach the word of God. We gladly confess that. We don't think everybody has the same ability or calling to teach the church, but we must never go one step further and think that only those who could write a, a volume on the Trinity at an academic level can understand the Trinity. The Trinity is there in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. We all go to the sacred text for our doctrinal formation. We all can read and know about the biblical Trinity, the Godhead. This is the fountain of our faith. If you feel like you cannot understand the Godhead, like it's so far beyond you, if you're intimidated by academic theologians who throw their weight around and speak in a language you, you can't understand, please hear me. The Trinity is for you. Father, Son, and Spirit are for you. The Bible is the source that enables you to understand the Godhead. Now, you are never going to master the Godhead. You are never going to bring God down to your level. You're never going to exhaust the profundity 
and if you'll hear this word in the right sense, mystery of Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, three persons. None of us will. In fact, the more you study the Holy Trinity, the more you recognize this is beyond you. Not beyond you in the sense that you can't say anything true about it. You can say much true about it. But beyond you in the sense that as a finite creature, you're studying God. You're studying divine persons. And there is no corollary for the Trinity. There is no evidentiary argument in this world that can help the unbeliever jump from one cliff to another such that the Trinity makes rational and logical sense. There is no way that the natural man outside of God's word and God's spirit, God's conviction can help sinners receive this. This is, if you will, an article of faith. It is grounded in the word of God. It is there principally. There is truth before us to take, read, and ingest. And yet, this is God's truth. This is not truth that you are going to find in our fallen world. This is not truth, furthermore, that the natural man wants, is looking for, and is going to logically approve outside of the work of God in his heart. Maybe he is religious. Maybe he is in a different denomination that says it is Trinitarian. But only those who know the Father, Son, and Spirit through saving faith, justifying faith, faith in Christ alone, through no admixture of their works, only they can rightly understand Father, Son, and Spirit. The Bible, then, all this to say, is what gives us what we need to know about Father, Son, and Spirit. All of this is prologue. Isn't that a little intimidating here? Because I want to narrow our discussion, and we're not going to do justice to it. Let's admit that up front. To specific doctrinal matter, eternal submission of the Son and eternal authority of the Father. As some of you will know, and others won't know, learning about this here on this podcast for the first time, this has been a point of discussion among evangelical academics and others, pastors, students, for roughly five years now. I won't go into what is called the Trinity debate, its workings, its origin, that sort of thing. I'll save that all for another day. I've got some receipts. I've got some stories to tell about the Trinity debate and how it began. And some of that would very much surprise and even startle folks. But I'll hold that back. What I want to do for our purposes is raise a matter that has been signaled on social media in recent days. And then I want to go to scripture to try to understand it as best I can. And I want to, I want to make this a matter of good faith and honesty and genuinely engaging those who have raised the following matter. Some have said that I, as a theologian, because I affirm eternal authority and eternal submission, eternal authority of the Father, eternal submission of the Son, what's called eternal relations of authority and submission, E-R-A-S. It's also sometimes called eternal functional subordination. The term I prefer is E-R-A-S, eternal relations of authority and submission. Some have said that because I affirm that, I am an Arian. That came up recently on Twitter, basically out of nowhere. And it came after I, as some of you heard, challenged Stephen Furtick's theology and called Stephen Furtick a false teacher for denying the doctrine of conversion, 
And I, of course, linked Furtick not only to that particular statement, a mishap, some called it, but to numerous other statements that show that Furtick is not sound in his theology and not sound in his doctrine and should be rejected as a teacher. And some who disagree with me for various reasons. Some disagree with me over my stance on wokeness. Some disagree with me over my stand on complementarianism. Some disagree with me uh, over ERAS, seeing it as, as the, this heresy. My stance was said to be, as I just alluded to, heretical. It said that I'm an Aryan heretic. Several folks have said this. In different books, by the way, other theologians and some online articles have hinted at this. It hasn't usually come out in quite that developed form. Strand is an Aryan. Others who hold ERAS, Bruce Ware, Wayne Grudem, they are Aryans. As I say, some have uh, tentatively uh, pointed people in that direction. They've laid track along those lines. But for whatever reason, I don't know their heart and their mind. They haven't come all the way out and said that. But recently it was said, as I say, um, I want to answer that. And I want to answer it not in a spirit of uh, vengeance, but in a spirit of good faith and honesty. So let me take you to the biblical text. Let's walk through some texts really fast that I think show why someone like me who loves the word of God, who is a born again believer, who is in no sense a heretic, who does not at all affirm that the Father and the Son are of a different essence. Recall that Arianism is the view that the Son is a creature, a created being, and semi-Arianism is the view that the Father and Son are homoiousios in the Greek, of like or similar essence. That's what Arianism and semi-Arianism is in technical terms. And recall that I don't hold that in the least. I never have. I've never come within 50 country miles of holding such a view, either view. Um, I believe that the Father and the Son are of the same, the very same divine essence. Very God of very God. But I do also believe that Scripture teaches us E-R-A-S. Scripture has real doctrinal material for us by which we understand the unique glory and beauty of the divine persons. Let's look at some text. John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The God in the first part of John 3.16, though you'll probably rarely hear this discussed or broken down even in a sermon, the God there, for God so loved the world, is God the Father. That's very clear from the next clause, that he gave his only son. So God, here as in tons of places throughout the New Testament, does not refer to generic three Trinitarian persons. It doesn't refer to a kind of fourth member of the Godhead, to uh, work off of Robert Lethem's just and very sharp-eyed criticism. There's not a fourth member of, of God, God that is packaged together, Father, Son, and Spirit. Typically, in the New Testament, when you see the term God, the name God, the divine name, you are having reference to the Father. You're reading about the Father, the Father's activity. Again, very shockingly few preachers and teachers will say that to you. We'll make that clear when they exposit and exegete a passage. I'm not exactly sure why. That's a subject for another day. But suffice it to say here that John 3.16, this is probably the most famous verse in all the Bible, is teaching us that the Father loved the world, and there's broader discussion about what that means. And, the, and in so doing, the way the Father expressed this love 
is he gave his only son. And then verse 17, God did not send his son. So the father both gave his son for us and the father sent his son into the world. This already signals that it is the father's province to give and send. The father alone is the one who gives and sends. And this, of course, goes all the way back. Theologians debate, and it's a valid debate to have, whether this giving and sending is only located within what is called the pactum salutis, the covenant of redemption. So so there's a, a giving and sending that only obtains within the plans of the Godhead to accomplish redemption and win a covenant people for God through the work of the Son by the agency of the Spirit. Some uh, Reformed theologians believe in what is called the Pactum Salutis. Others do not. John Murray would be one who, for example, though revered in Presbyterian circles, would question whether there is a covenant of redemption and, in fact, denied that there was a covenant of redemption. Many of us would say, I'll talk about this in a few minutes, that there's a plan of redemption. There's a plan of salvation. It's the Father's own plan, according to Ephesians 1. So there's not necessarily a covenant. Some, though, um, absolutize the idea that there is a covenant of redemption and then locate all the kind of activity that we're talking about in this podcast only within the covenant of redemption. So anything prior to the covenant of redemption, in other words, must uh, indicate an undifferentiated trinity in terms of authority and submission. Father and son in uh, before time, uh, before uh, the, the covenant of redemption do not dwell together in any meaningful sense in terms of authority and submission. They are effectively at the same level. And then they take on different roles um, within the context of the covenant of redemption. I trust, by the way, quick uh, pause, that you are hearing that I'm trying to describe the views of those who may or may not agree with me fairly and accurately. I'm going fast, but that's my goal. I don't want to malign them. Uh, I don't want to have folks who listen to this podcast for the first time or many of you uh, for for a longer portion of time. I, I don't want to have you biased toward me because I only describe my view or I describe the view of those who disagree with me, whether charitably and the vast majority of evangelical theologians and pastors disagree charitably without accusations of heresy or grave error or something like that on these matters. And then there are others who, who do um, lobby accusations of heresy or grave error, that sort of thing. I don't want to malign either camp, actually. I want to try uh, against my own finitude and sin. I want to try to describe their views fairly. And I pray that that work on the part of myself and others who hold ERAS will be a kind of small witness uh, to those who are really and genuinely trying to sort out the issues that I'm discussing on this particular episode of The Antithesis, and then, by the way, roughly uh, 129 other matters regarding Trinitarian doctrine. We are in we are in the high and holy places in discussing the Godhead. And these are not easy matters to sort out. And I pray that you will have discernment as you engage uh, this conversation and you will 
you will take note of who tries to be fair to the other side and even gives the other side a voice, even describes their view, even plays out why someone would come to that conclusion, as I just did briefly with regard to the covenant of redemption. And, and then I pray you discern who doesn't do that and who isn't fair and who presents the other side in the worst light. That is a sign when you do that sort of uh, hack work that you are not confident in your position. And your position can only advance when you don't present the other side. When I train students in, in the seminaries I teach in, this one is GBTS, when they write papers for me, I encourage them to handle the toughest objection to the case they are making in a position or thesis paper. I don't want them to present the weakest point. I don't want them to set up a straw man. That's shockingly common in evangelical academic theology. I am interested in the theologians who present the strongest case against their view, who take it seriously, who can handle the high inside fastball clocking 102 on the radar gun and still can stay in the batter's box and even send it back, perhaps even over the fence. Those are the ones who get my attention, not the ones who either present the other side unfairly, oftentimes not even quoting them, or even worse, who um, don't present their case at all. So there's disagreement among evangelical theologians over how exactly to locate uh, sending and giving of the Son by the Father. I think that is a valid debate. I think there are sound and godly theologians on different sides of the covenant of redemption debate. I in no way am convinced that I must hold the covenant of redemption. In fact, I think the case that has been advanced by some, including J.V. Fesco, is actually exegetically quite thin. Fesco is a gifted theologian, let that be said, but I've read his book on the covenant of redemption and came away quite unconvinced by his case. Some, however, find that case compelling. I don't think there is a covenant of redemption in Scripture. I do think there is definitely a plan of redemption, a plan of salvation that the Father uh, purposes according to his perfect will, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. So there's a, there's a discussion there to have, but it is entirely within bounds in terms of the tradition to see the Father giving and sending his Son, not only within the context of the covenant of redemption, but outside of it. Next text, John four thirty four. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is a repeated theme throughout the Gospels. The Son makes clear over and over again that he is not doing his own will. He is doing the Father's will. In fact, he repeatedly differentiates between his will and his Father's will. Here again, there's another lively and important discussion over the divine will, divine willing, divine willers. We want to have that discussion. We want students to read up on it in our seminaries and think it through and search it out according to the scriptures and read good books about it on different sides. That's a valid conversation to have. Let's simply note that in terms of the son's own confession, he is not here to execute a generic Trinitarian will, a generic divine will. He's here to do the Father's will. That is his food. He's here to accomplish the Father's work, not his own work. 
He hasn't sent himself. The Spirit hasn't sent him. The Father has sent him. The Father has sent him before the creation of the earth. This has been purpose, that is. And then in actual space and time, the Father has sent him into the earth. This is the plan made before the foundation of the earth. This is the eternal covenant of salvation. This is, in other words, the work that culminates in the new covenant. The new covenant is cut before all time, before the creation of the world. That's what I believe is in view there in the book of Hebrews, the eternal covenant of salvation. The Son has come to do the Father's will. The Father's will has primacy. You won't often hear much treatment of the Father's will. You'll usually hear discussion in evangelical academic theology about the divine will, the one will. That's a valid conversation to have. I'm not going to go into that today. I'm just going to point out that what the New Testament emphasizes over and over and over again is not the Son's will or the Spirit's will, but the Father's will. And if you've been on your heels about this, if you've wondered as you've read different theologians, their books, um, and, and, and you've, you've wondered when you then read the New Testament whether it's even appropriate to really talk about the Father's will, let the Bible put wind in your sails. <laughs> when Scripture talks about it, when Scripture affirms it, you can affirm it. You can not only hold it tentatively, scared, your hands trembling, for fear of what people might say about you, what blogs they might write about you. You can hold it with confidence. You must hold it with confidence. You hold it with joy. You stand up and hold it. You see this as a beautiful part of your understanding of the biblical God. This isn't lesser material. This isn't you getting out of bounds with Scripture. This is you being faithful to Scripture. The conversation doesn't always go in the way I'm describing here, rather impassionately. But uh, I'm here to say these things, even if many will not, for various reasons. I'm no hero, but I'm just trying to be faithful to Scripture as best I can. We all stumble in many ways. John 5 is the next text. John 5, 18 to 19. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Here we have two principles. We have total equality of Father and Son. The Son is equal with God. The Son is God. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. The Spirit is fully God. Praise God. Jesus is not a lesser God. Jesus is not very close to the level of God the Father, but just underneath it. No, Jesus is of the same divine essence, to use uh, the post-first century terms made by different Greek theologians, valuable theologians. The Son is of the same essence as the Father. And yet, the Son does nothing of his own accord. John 5, 19, only what he sees the Father doing. Huh. Well, here we get something vital, don't we? The Son is the obedient Son. He always has been the obedient Son. This, I believe, 
is not something unique to the biblical period or even the economy of redemption. The sun is always the same sun. It's strange because in this conversation over the Trinity, uh, including good faith debate between most theologians, some who would hold what I'm saying and some who would locate obedience in the covenant of redemption or economy of salvation. There's different ways to frame it. And then there are others outside of this group dwelling together in charity, a tiny pack uh, that that is raising accusations of heresy and demeaning those who would hold ERAS and that sort of thing. But in this conversation, um, there there is a recognition on all sides that the Son is immutable and the Father is immutable. And the Spirit, of course, is immutable as well. There's great attention paid to divine simplicity, immutability, and some related attributes of the Godhead. And that's a great number of topics to discuss. What does simplicity mean? I affirm a form of it, but it means different things to different theologians. And we can even, I think we can actually disagree over what divine simplicity is. We're told today that a a small handful of theologians alone defines divine simplicity and alone has things right. But that's, I don't think that's true at all. I don't think you need to come to that conclusion in the least. Okay, here's the thing. If the sun is immutable, if the sun doesn't change in his person, Always the divine son. Wouldn't it be the case that scripture is teaching us in the period when the son is incarnate, truly God, truly human, that he is the same son in eternity past? This is my belief. This almost feels simplistic today. Like you see the the son revealed in the scripture as the son in eternity past and the sun in eternity future. But it is no revolutionary belief. It's the most common sense, straightforward conception of the sun that I know of. For you and me to see the son of God as having the same character that the New Testament, in terms of his life and ministry, presents him as having, not only in that period, but before all time. This is because, brothers and sisters, I'll give my view here, this is because the Bible is teaching us the Trinity. The New Testament in particular is giving us the material about the Godhead that we need. It is not only giving us the material about the Godhead that obtains for a certain period We are learning about the eternal Father, eternal Son, and eternal Spirit, in particular, in the New Testament. So what is true of the Son in the Incarnation is true of the Son before the Incarnation. John 14, 28 is the next text. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Some theologians understand this text to obtain and apply only within the work of salvation, the economy of redemption, the covenant of redemption, if they hold that. I think you can make a case for that view, and I will hear your case, and I won't read you as some kind of heretic or terrible Christian. I don't think you're necessarily in grave error. 
That is not the only legitimate way to interpret John 14, 28, however. That's the way it's presented today. You can hold what I hold. You can hold that this does not in any way speak of ontological greatness of the Father over the Son. Of course it can't mean that. John's gospel in general is teaching ontological equality of Father and Son. This text is teaching, I believe. It's certainly possible to make this argument, because we have to make some kind of argument here. This is speaking to authority. This is speaking to the Father's authority. Doesn't mean that the Father is a better divine person than the Son, not in the least. Does mean that the Father has greater authority. The Father is the one who sent the Son. The Son is going to sit down at the Father's right hand when his work is done. He's not going to sit down in the same throne. He's not going to sit down right beside the Father at the same level. He sits down at the Father's right hand. They are at the same level in terms of ontological identity. They are each fully God. Even as the Spirit is fully God. There is no member of the Godhead that is more God than any other. There's no member of the Godhead that is created. There's no member of the Godhead that is of like essence to any other. This is part of why I I don't love constructions, for example, of the Holy Spirit that present the Spirit as, for example, a kind of uh, bond of affection between the Father and Son. There are some who hold that, and I don't read them necessarily as as off the rails. I I want to be a theologian of real charity within biblical bounds. It's when somebody trespasses beyond biblical bounds that we have to uh, rebuke those who contradict Scripture. But in general... Man, this is the highest and holiest stuff there is, as I have said already. So here I believe that the Son is speaking of the Father's greater authority. And that's going to make sense. That already makes sense, I think. That already makes sense based on what we have read. Here's another passage I think that makes sense of it. And and this is how you do Scripture. This, excuse me, this isn't how you do Scripture. Sorry. This is how you do theology. This is what you do. You take texts, you put them together, and you try to make sense of them together. You build a doctrine, not developing it from your own reason or outside sources, but developing it as the texts develop it. And sometimes you can't only say one thing, you have to say two things, many times. So here, for example, we're talking about the equality of the Father and the Son, even as we are talking about the greater authority of the Father and the submission of the Son. Acts 1, 6-7 speaks directly to that. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He, Jesus, said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It is not for you to know times or seasons, Acts 1-7. Look this up later as you're thinking this through. A lot of you are sorting these things out, perhaps hearing this for the first time, or perhaps you've heard it many times, this discussion that is, and you're still sorting it out. That's, That's understandable. This, this is hard stuff to sort out. And by the way, when we sort it out, we're not all going to agree perfectly. Let's not pretend that is the case. Nonetheless, it is not for you to know times or seasons, Jesus says, post-resurrection, that the Father has fixed by his own authority. This is obviously pre-world existence. <laughs> the Father set all things up. The Father planned all things according to his will. 
So this isn't only in terms of the son's incarnation. The father is the one who has fixed times and seasons. The father is the one who is working out the kingdom. The father is the one who has ordained everything. The father is the one who's not only allowed all matters to pass that occur. The father is the one who has appointed what is occurring. I want you to hear this and take tremendous encouragement. Again, if you have been beaten back by the Trinity debate and you're scared to affirm the eternal authority of the father. It's legitimate to have discussion over these matters and even disagree on some some of the points. But if you, I'm speaking specifically to a group out there, if you are somebody who, like me, reads that text and synthesizes it with what we have already been discussing, and there's so much more I'm leaving off the table, I'm not talking about, but if you synthesize this and understand this as the Father having his own authority that the Son submits to, not only when he has flesh and blood, but he's the one who was sent by the father by the authoritative father that is a that is a totally legitimate conclusion it's not just a legitimate conclusion like it's okay no it makes great sense i i think it i think it really brings scripture together i think when you understand this truth you understand one of the really vital truths about the biblical doctrine of god 1 Corinthians 11.3 is our next text. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Sometimes folks argue that the head of Christ is God means that the headship of the Father is limited to the economy. I don't hold that view. I think it's that's a possible conclusion, but I think in line with other texts in the Scripture— God the Father is the head of the Son. Now, here we need to make a comment. Sometimes it is said that ERAS affirming theologians like me read our complementarian convictions into the Godhead. So we're guilty, according to some, of taking complementarianism and then trying to put it into, shove it into the Godhead so that we have a ground in the Godhead for the headship and submission dynamic that we actually want operating in the world. In marriage. Nothing could be further from the truth. That is a lie that has gone around the world roughly 177,000 times. That's an exact calculation, by the way, in the last five years. Instead, we understand that headship and submission is found in our world, and we understand that the New Testament does make connections between the Godhead and us. We never think that the creator is the creature or something like that. But we recognize that authority and submission dynamics are not only found in this world. They're found in terms of the Trinity. This only makes sense, though. This has become an absolute electrified fence as a doctrinal conviction, but it makes sense of what we've been building here. It makes sense that God the Father, the one who sends his Son, would be the head of his son, would be the authority of his son. Authority and submission in no way entail inferior ontology. It is, I think, many of my critics who are actually guilty of reading their cultural views into the Godhead. It is not me. 
I don't say that with heat. I don't say that with anger. We, we all err in our theological work. We all have to check ourselves. We all have to confess sin and repent to God in our theological work, me included. But fundamentally, you find headship and submission in the Bible. You find headship and submission between God the Father and God the Son in the Bible. And the Son is never called the head of the Father, and the Son doesn't send the Father, and those roles could never be swapped. It is only fitting that the Father, the one who sends the Son, is also identified as the head, the authority, that is, kephale in the Greek, of the Son. These things make elegant sense when you bring them together. They're, they're not, honestly, they're not hard to understand. We're, we're not in Aryan territory here. We're so far from Aryan territory, it's not even funny. All right, one last text. Uh, there's much more I'm leaving on the table, as I say. But Revelation 2, 26 and 27 needs to be commented on. Revelation 2, 26. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. This is the son speaking. Even as I myself have received authority. From my father. You see, even if you hold that this reception of authority on the son's part is only ordered toward the covenant of redemption, found in it and ordered toward the work of redemption, why would it be that prior to the formation of the covenant of redemption, however, however you understand that, the father is the one who has granted the son to have authority in the work of redemption or the covenant of redemption, the economy. Why would that be? Was it a jump ball? Uh, Father, son, and spirit being the same in role as persons, according to those who would disagree with me. Uh, I'm not trying to put the stove too hot here. I'm, I mean, this is a genuine question, a good faith question. Why would the father be the one who delegates authority to the son? Why would that be? I and many ERAS affirmers, and there are many out there, <laughs> they don't always poke their head up in public, but there are many, would have that question for our friends and also for those who do not see themselves as our friends but have made themselves of their own volition, of their own will, our enemies in theological terms, sadly. You see, it makes perfect sense if you believe that the eternal son is the same and the eternal father is the same before all time, in all time, after this world is brought to its telos by the son, it makes perfect sense. It does no violence to the biblical mind, nor to sound synthetic theology, systematic theology to conclude that the Father is the one in eternity past who is head over the Son and thus delegates authority to the Son in the work of redemption. And then the Son is the one who expresses that he has received authority from the Father even in the ages to come. The Son never kicks against the Father's authority. The Son does not chafe against it. The Son does not speak against it. The Son does not indicate in the Bible, in the New Testament, that he has a problem with it. He doesn't lament it. There is no hardship in the father being the head and the son being the one who submits to the father's headship 
in Scripture. This is beautiful material. It is not just within distant bounds to hold the views that I have been trying imperfectly to sketch in this humble little podcast. It is, I believe, truly that which helps you understand fatherhood and sonship. To put it differently, helps you understand, among other uh, revelatory teachings about the Trinity, who the Father is and who the Son is. The Father is the authoritative Father. The Son is the submissive Son or the obedient Son. But there's no diminishing of ontology in confessing these realities. We think that way naturally. The natural man, the unregenerate man, comes to that conclusion. If somebody needs to submit, whether it's uh, human or divine, they are a lesser person. They're in a worse role. That is lamentable. That's not good. That is not the biblical portrait. Whether you hold to ERAS, eternal authority and submission, or whether you hold to it, 1 Corinthians 15, 28, only in terms of the covenant of redemption or the plan of salvation and then into eternity to come, you must recognize that it does no violence to the Son for him to be subject to the Father into all eternity to come. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. There is no grounds then for seeing the son's subjection as a negative reality. This is not usually commented on or brought out in these discussions, but it is a vital part of these discussions because an often unstated assumption is that the son being subject to the father, whatever, whenever that obtains is a negative reality, or at the very least, not a positive one, or at the very least, not ideal, not what it was for some. But I want to suggest to you, no, though the Son does incarnate and does express obedience to the Father uniquely, culminating in his work of salvation, his death on the cross, though that does all occur and needs to occur for him to show his obedience and his love to the Father uh, per the freely made plan of the Father, freely received uh, work of the Son. This is all that which shows us true sonship and true fatherhood. We don't have two trinities. We have one trinity. We don't have two distinct fathers that we should understand. We don't have two distinct sons. What the Bible teaches about the Son is true of the Son now and beyond all time in any direction. What the Bible teaches us about the Father is true now and is true beyond all time in any direction. Trinitarian authority and submission are beautiful. That's the conclusion here. They help us understand who the Father is and who the Son is. And if we don't have this material, in my view, in my reading of Scripture, we won't fully understand the Father and we won't fully understand the Son. Let me, let me even narrow in just a little bit. We won't understand the unique glory of the Father as his own distinct person. And we won't understand the unique glory of the Son as his own distinct person. One God, three persons. Glory, gloriously united. And yet, three distinct persons. It's not a bad thing 
to think about the three persons. The very term is Trinity. Trinity. Three. Now, we aren't waiting unity as that which is more important or diversity as that which is more important when it comes to Father, Son, and Spirit. The two hang together. They must hang together. So we're not really excited about unity. And then a few places the Bible talks about, you know, the distinctness of the person. So we'll, we'll occasionally talk about that. that. That's another trend in evangelical academic theology to focus on unity, oneness, and to downplay and almost, almost um, see as derogatory threeness. If you do not have oneness and threeness in balance, your Trinitarianism will go out of whack and you will be headed for an unhealthy end with regard to your theological formation. You must keep oneness and threeness in balance. Equally important. We do not wait one over the other. If you are under a theologian who does, take care. Pay attention. I do not believe that is a healthy trend and trajectory. So oneness matters. Oh, does it matter? (laughs) No trinity without it. No biblical God without it. And threeness matters. And actually, the New Testament does give us a great deal of material showing us the distinctness of the three persons, never acting uh, out of alignment with the one Godhead, and yet working in their own role per their own person, and that not being problematic in the least, that being biblically rich and wondrous wonder as you discover the unique distinctness of the three persons. Don't feel bad about that. Don't feel like you're verging into dangerous territory. You're not. You keep those two things together, oneness and threeness, and you rejoice in what the Bible teaches. Today, I need to wrap this up. Today, some argue that confessing what I have tried to sketch out is akin to novel heresy. As I say, it's Arianism or semi-Arianism. But in actuality, that's not true at all. Not just a smattering of a few desultory theologians, but many of the church's best theologians have held to ERAS, Eternal Relations of Authority and Submission. They've, they've articulated that. They've expressed that. I don't know everything about them, of course, but they've, they've confessed it in writing. That's what I mean. I don't know their mind and heart myself. Augustine has said this at one point in, late in his life and theological career. If true reasoning admits that the equal son obeys his equal father, We do not deny the obedience, but if you want to believe that he is inferior in nature by reason of this obedience, we forbid it. There it is from Augustine. The son is not inferior for obeying. If I can add to that, we learn about the son, the unique person of the son, the distinct characteristics of the son. Through understanding him as obedient, as son, he is obedient. Hilary of Poitiers. Just a few centuries later, one is not superior to the other on account of the kind of substance, but one is subject to the other because born of the other. The father is greater because he is father. The son is not less because he is son. The difference is one of the meaning of a name and not of a nature. Beautiful words. 
Charles Hodge. The father operates through the son and the father and son operate through the spirit. The converse of these statements is never found. The son is never said to send the father nor to operate through him, nor is the spirit ever said to send the father or the son or to operate through them. James Pettigrew Boyce, the founder of the seminary I attended for my MDiv. There is also subordination of office or rank still more plainly taught. By virtue of this, the father sends the son and the father and son send the spirit. The order of this subordination is plainly apparent from the scriptural names and statements about the relations. The father is unquestionably first, the son second, and the Holy Spirit third. So it's not only taxes, it's also the very identity of the persons. J.I. Packer, as I scroll unsuccessfully. Part of the revealed mystery of the Godhead is that the three persons stand in a fixed relation to each other. It is the nature of the second person of the Trinity to acknowledge the authority and submit to the good pleasure of the first. That is why he declares himself to be the son and the first person to be his father. Though co-equal with the father in eternal, excuse me, in eternity, power and glory, it is natural to him to play the son's part and find all his joy in doing his father's will. Just as it is natural to the first person of the Trinity to plan and initiate the works of the Godhead and natural to the third person, the spirit, to proceed from the father and son to do their joint bidding. Thus, the obedience of the God-man to the Father while he was on earth was not a new relationship occasioned by the Incarnation, but the continuation in time, Packer writes, of the eternal relationship between the Father, or excuse me, between the Son and the Father in heaven. I'm going to read that sentence again. Thus, the obedience of the God-man to the Father while he was on earth was not a new relationship occasioned by the Incarnation, but the continuation in time of the eternal relationship relationship between the son and the father in heaven. Listen, let me say this uh, as we're wrapping up. If you are an Arian for holding to eternal relations of authority and submission, then J.I. Packer is the Arian of Arians. J.I. Packer is a heretic, therefore, whether he's an Arian or a semi-Arian, and J.I. Packer, that means, is in hell. He is in hell for all eternity. He is in hellfire. He is being devoured by the unquenchable worm. That is what these charges indicate. These are the most serious charges that can be made in the ministry of the Word of God. That a man is a heretic. I have tried to present the case fairly with regard to other sides, but it is important that I say this at the final point of this podcast. There are two choices here, and they are stark. Either Packer and others, like me, are heretics, and either are burning in hell or will burn in hell for what we are teaching about the Father and the Son. Or the other side is slandering the body, slandering theologians like us. And I don't mean slandering in the sense that you say a little word that somebody doesn't like and and give them a, you know, noogie. I mean slandering to the utmost. I mean calling us unbelievers, and not just unbelievers, but false teachers. There are false teachers out there. They must be called out. Give instruction in sound doctrine, Titus 1.9, and rebuke those, those who contradict it. If somebody is a false teacher, they must be rebuked. But if somebody holds to a biblical conviction that many 
of the church's best theologians and pastors have held. It is ungodly slander deserving of repentance to call them a heretic. And it is uncharitable in serious measure to say they are in grave error or anything approaching that. Let us have done with such slander. Let us watch those who make such charges. Beware those who slander good and godly men. God will bring down the proud, but he exalts the humble. Beware those who push you away from Scripture, Scripture alone, as your ultimate authority. You read many books, you read the words and works of, of many different theologians and pastors. You consult and learn from in serious form the creeds and confessions. You align yourself with different denominations or churches or networks in this life. Your theological formation is rich and textured, and yet Scripture alone is your ultimate authority. You stand on the Word of God and the Word of God alone. Beware those who push you away from the solid rock of the Word of God. Stand instead with the vast majority, the vast majority of Christian pastors and theologians and live in gospel unity and charity. The church has never brought charges of heresy against the many theologians and pastors who have held to eternal relations of authority and submission as I do. That is totally unique in church history. It's unfound in the historical record in any serious form. That is what is unique today. That is what is ungodly. That is what is unrighteous. It is, it is within bounds to disagree about what I have discussed in this podcast and to disagree about the formulation of many other strands and elements of Trinitarian doctrine, provided you confess the Holy Trinity as one God, three persons, you believe the Bible, you know Christ by justifying faith, you do not deny what it teaches. It is just and valid to disagree and have serious conversation. You should stand with the vast, vast majority who dwell together in gospel unity and charity, who recognize that these charges are unique. It is not ERAS that is unique. It is these charges. There is a tiny handful out there today that is bringing division along these lines. Do not be part of it. I pray instead that with humility, with fear and trembling, we will all strive to stand on the word of God and we will find Christ not only our example, but our sufficiency. And we will confess the word of God as the very solid rock that it is. We are all needy sinners. We all fail over and over again. We all stumble in many ways. We all must repent and confess our sin. Praise God. The grace of God is enough for us.
General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.